Chapter Three, Part One, of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Three, in which certain other persons are introduced on the same terms as in the last chapter. Part One. Mention has been already made, more than once, of a certain dragon who swung and creaked complainingly before the village alehouse door. A faded and an ancient dragon he was, and many a wintry storm of rain, snow, sleet, and hail had changed his colour from a gaudy blue to a faint, lacklustre shade of grey. But there he hung, rearing in a state of monstrous imbecility on his hind legs, waxing with every month that passed so much more dim and shapeless that as you gazed at him on one side of the signboard it seemed as if he must be gradually melting through it and coming out upon the other he was a courteous and considerate dragon too or had been in his distincter days for in the midst of his rampant feebleness he kept one of his forepaws near his nose as though he would say don't mind me it's only my fun while he held out the other in polite and hospitable entreaty. Indeed, it must be conceded to the whole brood of dragons of modern times that they have made a great advance in civilization and refinement. They no longer demand a beautiful virgin for breakfast every morning, with as much regularity as any tame single gentleman expects his hot roll, but rest content with the society of idle bachelors and roving married men, and they are now remarkable, rather, for holding aloof from the softer sex and discouraging their visits, especially on Saturday nights, than for rudely insisting on their company without any reference to their inclinations, as they are known to have done in days of yore. Nor is this tribute to the reclaimed animals in question so wide a digression into the realms of natural history as it may at first sight appear to be, for the present business of these pages in with the dragon who had his retreat in Mr. Pecksniff's neighbourhood and that courteous animal being already on the carpet, there is nothing in the way of its immediate transaction. For many years, then, he had swung and creaked and flapped himself about before the two windows of the best bedroom of that house of entertainment to which he lent his name. But never, in all his swinging, creaking, and flapping, had there been such a stir within its dingy precincts as on the evening next after that upon which the incidents detailed in the last chapter occurred. When there was such a hurrying up and down stairs of feet, such a glancing of lights, such a whispering of voices, such a smoking and sputtering of wood newly lighted in a damp chimney, such an airing of linen, such a scorching smell of hot warming-pans, such a domestic bustle and to-do, in short, as never dragon, griffin, unicorn, or other animal of that species presided over since they first began to interest themselves in household affairs. An old gentleman and a young lady, travelling unattended in a rusty old chariot with post-horses, coming nobody knew whence, and going nobody knew whither, had turned out of the high-road and driven unexpectedly to the blue dragon, and here was the old gentleman, who had taken this step by reason of his sudden illness in the carriage, suffering the most horrible cramps and spasms, yet protesting and vowing in the very midst of his pain, that he wouldn't have a doctor sent for, and wouldn't take any remedies but those which the young lady administered from a small medicine-chest, 
and wouldn't, in a word, do anything but terrify the landlady out of her five wits, and obstinately refuse compliance with every suggestion that was made to him. Of all the five hundred proposals for his relief which the good woman poured out in less than half an hour, he would entertain but one. That was that he should go to bed. And it was in the preparation of his bed and the arrangement of his chamber that all the stir was made in the room behind the dragon. He was, beyond all question, very ill, and suffered exceedingly, not the less, perhaps, because he was a strong and vigorous old man, with a will of iron and a voice of brass, but neither the apprehensions which he plainly entertained at times for his life, nor the great pain he underwent, influenced his resolution in the least degree. He would have no person sent for. The worse he grew, the more rigid and inflexible he became in his determination. If they sent for any person to attend him, man, woman, or child, he would leave the house directly, so he told them, though he quitted it on foot and died upon the threshold of the door. Now, there being no medical practitioner actually resident in the village, but a poor apothecary who was also a grocer and general dealer, the landlady had, upon her own responsibility, sent for him in the very first burst and outset of the disaster. Of course it followed, as a necessary result of his being wanted, that he was not at home. He had gone some miles away, and was not expected home until late at night. So the landlady, being by this time pretty well beside herself, dispatched the same messenger in all haste for Mr. Pecksniff, as a learned man who could bear a deal of responsibility, and a moral man who could administer a world of comfort to a troubled mind. That her guest had need of some efficient services under the latter head was obvious enough from the restless expressions, importing, however, rather a worldly than a spiritual anxiety, to which he gave frequent utterance. From this last-mentioned secret errand, the messenger returned with no better news than from the first. Mr. Pecksniff was not at home. However, they got the patient into bed without him, and in the course of two hours he gradually became so far better that there were much longer intervals than at first between his terms of suffering. By degrees he ceased to suffer at all, though his exhaustion was occasionally so great that it suggested hardly less alarm than his actual endurance had done. It was in one of his intervals of repose, when looking round with great caution and reaching uneasily out of his nest of pillows, he endeavoured, with a strange air of secrecy and distrust, to make use of the writing materials which he had ordered to be placed on a table beside him, that the young lady and the mistress of the blue dragon found themselves sitting side by side before the fire in the sick-chamber. The mistress of the blue dragon was in outward appearance just what a landlady should be, broad, buxom, comfortable, and good-looking, with a face of clear red and white, which, by its jovial aspect, at once bore testimony to her hearty participation in the good things of the larder and cellar, and to their thriving and healthful influences. She was a widow, but years ago had passed through her state of weeds and burst into flower again, and in full bloom she had continued ever since, and in full bloom she was now, with roses on her ample skirts and roses on her bodice, roses in her cap, roses in her cheeks, Ay, and roses worth the gathering, too, on her lips, for that matter. She had still a bright black eye and jet-black hair, was comely, dimpled, plump, and tight as a gooseberry, and though she was not exactly what the world calls young, 
you may make an affidavit on trust before any mayor or magistrate in Christendom that there are a great many young ladies in the world, blessings on them one and all, whom you wouldn't like half as well or admire half as much as the beaming hostess of the Blue Dragon. As this fair matron sat beside the fire, she glanced occasionally with all the pride of ownership about the room, which was a large apartment, such as one may see in country places, with a low roof and a sunken flooring, all downhill from the door, and a descent of two steps on the inside, so exquisitely unexpected that strangers, despite the most elaborate cautioning, usually dived in head first as into a plunging bath. It was none of your frivolous and preposterously bright bedrooms, where nobody can close an eye with any kind of propriety or decent regard to the association of ideas, but it was a good, dull, leaden, drowsy place where every article of furniture reminded you that you came there to sleep, and that you were expected to go to sleep. There was no wakeful reflection of the fire there, as in your modern chambers, which, upon the darkest nights, have a watchful consciousness of French polish. The old Spanish mahogany winked at it now and then, as a dozing cat or dog might. Nothing more. The very size and shape and hopeless immovability of the bedstead and wardrobe and in a minor degree of even the chairs and tables, provoked sleep. They were plainly apoplectic and disposed to snore. There were no staring portraits to remonstrate with you for being lazy, no round-eyed birds upon the curtains, disgustingly wide awake and insufferably prying. The thick neutral hangings and the dark blinds and the heavy heap of bedclothes were all designed to hold in sleep and act as non-conductors to the day in getting up. Even the old stuffed fox upon the top of the wardrobe was devoid of any spark of vigilance, for his glass eye had fallen out and he slumbered as he stood. The wandering attention of the mistress of the blue dragon roved to these things but twice or thrice, and then for but an instant at a time. It soon deserted them, and even the distant bed with its strange burden, for the young creature immediately before her, who— with her downcast eyes intently fixed upon the fire, sat wrapped in silent meditation. She was very young, apparently no more than seventeen, timid and shrinking in her manner, and yet with a greater share of self-possession and control over her emotions than usually belongs to a far more advanced period of female life. This she had abundantly shown but now in her tending of the sick gentleman. She was short in stature, and her figure was slight, as became her years, but all the charms of youth and maidenhood set it off, and clustered on her gentle brow. Her face was very pale, in part, no doubt, from recent agitation. Her dark brown hair, disordered from the same cause, had fallen negligently from its bonds, and hung upon her neck, for which instance of its waywardness no male observer would have had the heart to blame it. Her attire was that of a lady, but extremely plain, and in her manner, even when she sat as still as she did then, there was an indefinable something which appeared to be in kindred with her scrupulously unpretending dress. She had sat, at first looking anxiously towards the bed, but seeing that the patient remained quiet and was busy with his writing, she had softly moved her chair into its present place, partly, as it seemed, from an instinctive consciousness that he desired to avoid observation, and partly that she might, unseen by him, give some vent to the natural feelings she had hitherto suppressed. 
Of all this and much more the rosy landlady of the Blue Dragon took as accurate note and observation as only woman can take of woman, and at length she said, in a voice too low she knew, to reach the bed, "'You have seen the gentleman in this way before, miss? Is he used to these attacks?' "'I have seen him very ill before, but not so ill as he has been to-night.' "'What a providence,' said the lady of the dragon, "'that you had the prescriptions and the medicines with you, miss. "'They are intended for such an emergency. "'We never travel without them.' "'Oh,' thought the hostess, "'then we are in the habit of travelling, "'and of travelling together.' "'She was so conscious of expressing this in her face "'that meeting the young lady's eyes immediately afterwards, "'and being a very honest hostess, "'she was rather confused. "'The gentleman... "'Your grandpapa,' she resumed, after a short pause, "'being so bent on having no assistance, "'must terrify you very much, miss. "'I have been very much alarmed to-night. "'He—he he is not my grandfather.' "'Father,' I should have said, returned the hostess, "'sensible of having made an awkward mistake. "'Nor my father,' said the young lady. "'Nor,' she added, slightly smiling, "'with a quick perception of what the landlady was going to add, "'Nor my uncle. We are not related.' "'Oh, dear me!' returned the landlady, still more embarrassed than before. "'How could I be so very much mistaken, knowing, as anybody in their proper senses might, "'that when a gentleman is ill he looks so much older than he really is, "'that I should have called you Miss, too, ma'am?' "'But when she had proceeded thus far she glanced involuntarily at the third finger of the young lady's left hand, "'and faltered again, for there was no ring upon it. "'When I told you we were not related,' said the other mildly, "'but not without confusion on her own part, "'I meant not in any way, not even by marriage. "'Did you call me, Martin?' "'Call you?' cried the old man, looking quickly up, "'and hurriedly drawing beneath the coverlet the paper on which he had been writing. "'No.' "'She had moved a pace or two towards the bed, but stopped immediately and went no farther. "'No,' he repeated with a petulant emphasis. "'Why do you ask me? "'If I had called you, what need for such a question?' "'It was the creaking of the sign outside, sir, I dare say,' observed the landlady, "'a suggestion, by the way, as she felt a moment after she had made it, "'not at all complimentary to the voice of the old gentleman. "'No matter what, ma'am,' he rejoined, "'it wasn't I. "'Why, how you stand there, Mary, as if I had the plague!' "'But they're all afraid of me,' he added, leaning helplessly backward on his pillow. "'Even she. There is a curse upon me. What else have I to look for?' "'Oh, dear, no. Oh, no, I'm sure,' said the good-tempered landlady, rising and going towards him. "'Be of better cheer, sir. These are only sick fancies.' "'What are only sick fancies?' he retorted. "'What do you know about fancies? Who told you about fancies? "'The old story. Fancies.' "'Only see again there how you take one up,' said the mistress of the blue dragon, with unimpaired good humour. "'Dear heart alive, there is no harm in the word, sir, if it is an old one. Folks in good health have their fancies, too, and strange ones, every day.' Harmless as this speech appeared to be, it acted on the traveller's distrust like oil on fire. He raised his head up in the bed, and fixing on her two dark eyes whose brightness was exaggerated by the paleness of his hollow cheeks, as they in turn, together with his straggling locks of long grey hair, were rendered whiter by the tight black velvet skull-cap which he wore, he searched her face intently. 
"'Ah, you begin too soon,' he said, in so low a voice that he seemed to be thinking it rather than addressing her. "'But you lose no time. You do your errand and you earn your fee. Now who may be your client?' The landlady looked in great astonishment at her whom he called Mary, and, finding no rejoinder in the drooping face, looked back again at him. At first she had recoiled involuntarily, supposing him disordered in his mind. But the slow composure of his manner, and the settled purpose announced in his strong features, and gathering most of all about his puckered mouth, forbade the supposition. "'Come,' he said, "'tell me who is it. Being here it is not very hard for me to guess, you may suppose.' "'Martin,' interposed the young lady, laying her hand upon his arm, "'reflect how short a time we have been in this house, and that even your name is unknown here.' "'Unless,' he said, "'you—' He was evidently tempted to express a suspicion of her having broken his confidence in favour of the landlady, but either remembering her tender nursing, or being moved in some sort by her face, he checked himself, and changing his uneasy posture in the bed, was silent. "'There,' said Mrs. Lupin, for in that name the Blue Dragon was licensed to furnish entertainment, both to man and beast. "'Now you will be well again, sir. You forgot for the moment that there were none but friends here.' "'Oh!' cried the old man, moaning impatiently, as he tossed one restless arm upon the coverlet. "'Why do you talk to me of friends? Can you or anybody teach me to know who are my friends and who my enemies?' "'At least,' urged Mrs. Lupin gently, "'this young lady is your friend, I am sure.' "'She has no temptation to be otherwise,' cried the old man, like one whose hope and confidence were utterly exhausted. "'I suppose she is. Heaven knows.' "'There, let me try to sleep. Leave the candle where it is.' As they retired from the bed, he drew forth the writing which had occupied him so long, and holding it in the flame of the taper, burnt it to ashes. That done, he extinguished the light, and turning his face away with a heavy sigh, drew the coverlet about his head, and lay quite still. This destruction of the paper, both as being strangely inconsistent with the labour he had devoted to it, and as involving considerable danger of fire to the dragon, occasioned Mrs. Lupin not a little consternation. But the young lady, evincing no surprise, curiosity, or alarm, whispered her, with many thanks for her solicitude and company, that she would remain there some time longer, and that she begged her not to share her watch, as she was well used to being alone, and would pass the time in reading." Mrs. Lupin had her full share and dividend of that large capital of curiosity which is inherited by her sex, and at another time it might have been difficult so to impress this hint upon her as to induce her to take it. But now, in sheer wonder and amazement at these mysteries, she withdrew at once, and repairing straight away to her own little parlour below stairs, sat down in her easy-chair with unnatural composure. At this very crisis a step was heard in the entry, and Mr. Pecksniff, looking sweetly over the half-door of the bar and into the vista of snug privacy beyond, murmured, "'Good evening, Mrs. Lupin.' "'Oh, dear me, sir,' she cried, advancing to receive him, "'I am so very glad you have come.' "'And I am very glad I have come,' said Mr. Pecksniff. "'If I can be of service, I am very glad I have come. "'What is the matter, Mrs. Lupin?' "'A gentleman taken ill upon the road has been so very bad upstairs, sir,' said the cheerful hostess. "'A gentleman taken ill upon the road has been so very bad upstairs, has he?' repeated Mr. Pecksniff. "'Well, well!' 
Now there was nothing that one may call decidedly original in this remark, nor can it be exactly said to have contained any wise precept, theretofore unknown to mankind, or to have opened any hidden source of consolation. But Mr. Pecksniff's manner was so bland, and he nodded his head so soothingly, and showed in everything such an affable sense of his own excellence, that anybody would have been, as Mrs. Lupin was, comforted by the mere voice and presence of such a man. And though he had merely said, A verb must agree with its nominative case in number and person, my good friend, or eight times eight are sixty-four, my worthy soul, must have felt deeply grateful to him for his humanity and wisdom. "'And how?' asked Mr. Pecksniff, drawing off his gloves and warming his hands before the fire, as benevolently as if they were somebody else's, not his. "'And how is he now?' "'He is better and quite tranquil,' answered Mrs. Lupin. "'He is better and quite tranquil,' said Mr. Pecksniff. "'Very well, very well.' Here again, though the statement was Mrs. Lupin's and not Mr. Pecksniff's, Mr. Pecksniff made it his own and consoled her with it. It was not much when Mrs. Lupin said it, but it was a whole book when Mr. Pecksniff said it. I observe, he seemed to say, and through me morality in general remarks, that he is better and quite tranquil. There must be weighty matters on his mind, though, said the hostess, shaking her head, for he talks, sir, in the strangest way you ever heard. He is far from easy in his thoughts, and wants some proper advice from those whose goodness makes it worth his having. Then, said Mr. Pecksniff, he is the sort of customer for me. But though he said this in the plainest language, he didn't speak a word. He only shook his head, disparagingly of himself, too. I am afraid, sir, continued the landlady, first looking round to assure herself that there was nobody within hearing, and then looking down upon the floor. I am very much afraid, sir, that his conscience is troubled by his not being related to, or, or even married to, a very young lady. Mrs. Lupin, said Mr. Pecksniff, holding up his hand with something in his manner as nearly approaching to severity as any expression of his mild being that he was could ever do. Person? Young person? A very young person, said Mrs. Lupin, curtsying and blushing. I beg your pardon, sir, but I have been so hurried to-night that I don't know what I say. Who is with him now? Who is with him now? ruminated Mr. Pecksniff, warming his back as he had warmed his hands, as if it were a widow's back, or an orphan's back, or an enemy's back, or a back that any less excellent man would have suffered to be cold. Oh, dear me, dear me! At the same time I am bound to say, and I do say with all my heart, observed the hostess earnestly, that her looks and manner almost disarm suspicion. Your suspicion, Mrs. Lupin, said Mr. Pecksniff gravely, is very natural. Touching which remark, let it be written down to their confusion that the enemies of this worthy man unblushingly maintained that he always said of what was very bad that it was very natural and that he unconsciously betrayed his own nature in doing so. "'Your suspicion, Mrs. Lupin,' he repeated, "'is very natural, and I have no doubt correct. "'I will wait upon these travellers.' With that he took off his great-coat, and, having run his fingers through his hair, thrust one hand gently in the bosom of his waistcoat, and meekly signed to her to lead the way. End of Chapter 3, Part 1